Coming up in this week's episode of Destination Linux, we have swap partitions versus swap files, Ubuntu 20.04 Remix Edition, Google Stadia back in the news, community feedback, as well as our software pick and software spotlight of the week. All this and more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Welcome to episode 172. This is a podcast about sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Destination Linux is a show for all experience levels. So whether you're a beginner to Linux or a master sudoer, welcome. I'm Ryan and with me today are the declassified Pentagon UFO filmmakers, Michael, Noah, and Rocco. That seems so very find fitting. Out. It is kind of fitting. <laughs> let's find out what everyone's been up to this week. Rocco, first of all, Welcome back to DL. I, I've got to ask, before we get into what you've been up to, how have you noticed the production value of this show has changed since you left? I'll answer for well, him. It's perfect. Well, if the pre-show is any indication, it didn't change a whole lot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Nothing at all. Michael's still late. You I know, was, no, we're, I we're, was on time. Still... I was on time. Uh, okay. Technically, yeah. I, was sit- I was sitting here on with my camera on before you, therefore on time. That's how I... Explain it. Michael, go sit in your stool two seconds. So, Rocco, what have you been up to this week? Well, before we move on, I just wanted to say the production that you guys have been doing has been awesome. Uh, You guys have taken this show to a whole new level that was never there before. So that is a big plus. I appreciate that. Thank Thank you. you. I have to agree. Of course. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, Michael. Just shut up and take a compliment. Rocco, what have you been up to this week? Well, I mean, uh, this week has been a blur, dude, uh, from, you know, working full time hours again and trying to do Linux Spotlight and scheduling that. Um, I've had so many awesome guests on Linux Spotlight to talk to, trying to learn DaVinci Resolve, trying to learn DaVinci Resolve audio along with the video. Uh, It's just been crazy. So that's what I've been up to. Oh, and one more thing. I did want to show you this this right oh baby you the have DBX. to help yep you have to help me set that up dbx 286s it is the greatest gating tool for microprocessing for audio for i don't know home users i guess it probably used in fancy studios too right no or is that yeah, consumer at, level it's at, no it's very much not um obviously there are better microphone processors money can buy but that the, the dbx 286 is the best microphone processor under a thousand dollars bar none in fact i actually paid an audio engineer to um to sit down who understands auroral acoustics and stuff like that to, to sit down and help me tune uh, a dbx 286 for a bunch of different microphones so if you have a pr40 an sm57 a uh, re20 an re320 an re27 nd uh, an a- a- sm5b what was the other one we did I think we did one or two more i have presets for all of those that was tuned by a world-renowned audio expert. Uh, sat there with headphones and, and and tuned them for, and I'd be happy to send those to you. That would be it's a good awesome. starting point. Yeah, I would like that because uh, I didn't read the manual with mine. So, uh, <laughs> but it it does it does work technically. No, it's it's fantastic. It gates all the noise. I have kids running up and down up up because I'm below the floor that they usually play on. You don't hear that the dogs barking, the neighbor that decides to mow the lawn. All that gets gated out through the DBX and this. It's one of the best pieces of equipment from a hardware perspective you can get. I actually switched from the Scarlett 2i2 to the PreSonos 2x24 edition, and they both work fantastic. So I don't know what USB interface you have, Rocco, but one of those two 
are definitely my recommendation if you haven't purchased one yet. Well, I have an Alesis Multimix 4 right now. So that's been working, but I guess the DBX will go in between that somewhere. Yeah. We'll we'll, we'll read the manual and find out where it goes. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. We should play around with it and find out where it goes. See, that's what I'm talking about. I'm glad I'm not the only one. You're so, not. Michael, what have you been up to this week? Well, I've been reading some manuals on a variety of things uh, based on our random boring, sh- yeah, random shuffle thing. Well, it's actually it's from based on the tip from last week. We had a oh, you're serious? You're yeah. really reading manuals every once in a while. I'm, I, you know, like the, you know, I, I don't read the whole thing because they're gigantic usually. But you know, every I've been doing the whole uh, random man page a day thing for the the, sh- the oh, that. tip that yeah, we did yeah. last week, and that that's been fun. And uh, also, I'm I'm also doing a lot of stuff with uh, setting up my machine again. And I went down. Uh, we talk about this in Hardware Addict, so I'm not going to go in super depth. But I did a I went through a rabbit hole of trying to find the best solution for long term storage. And I spent way too much time researching and trying to find the absolute best solution. And, and what I came the conclusion I came to is I don't know still. So. <laughs> Good job. Yep. That's why you don't read manuals. You just do trial and error. That way, you know, you can <laughs> come up with your own ideas of what's yeah. right and wrong. And who cares what the reality of it is? Yep. How, hard to argue there. So, Noah, what have you been up to? I actually have uh, been inundated with trying to get all of the infrastructure and uh, organization and, and everything situated for Southeast Linux Fest, which, you know, first I thought, you know, this is this is me, right? This is how I get myself into these jams is I say to myself, self. I go to Southeast Linux Fest every year. I set up a table and I turn on the stream and then people talk and do it. So people are still willing to talk. I just don't have to ship all the equipment there. I'll just set it up at the table in my office. How hard could it be? And uh, (laughs) finding out that there is a tremendous amount of work that goes into this. And so um, I, you know, there are a lot of people in the destination Linux community have stepped up and a lot of people in other communities have stepped up and offered to, to, to help and and become a part of that. And so it's moving forward, but it, it, it is occupying every spare minute of my time when I'm not at work or or doing stuff with family. What kind of help do you need with Southeast Linux Fest? So for those who don't know, Southeast Linux Fest is still happening. It's going to be virtual event. Noah is working really hard with other folks that are volunteering to help make this a reality, make it the best virtual event that you can. But what's some help that you need right now? So to start, one of the things that we started with was we started uh, with a fresh slate and said, how would we begin to set up the infrastructure for doing something like this? And I said, first and foremost, everything needs to be free and open source because I don't want people to have to download a proprietary client like Zoom or Hangouts or, or use some service and or product that's owned by some company or, or something that somebody's going to feel um, guilty about. This is the opportunity for us to put the rubber to the road and find out for realsies, can can we do all of the things that we think we can do with open source? Does it work well enough to host a conference? And so that's where we started with. And we started with things like DigitalOcean and VPSs and stuff and quickly learned that there was some physical equipment that we need to really kind of sweeten the sweeten the 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 audio delivery and 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 kind of process and stuff like that and so there was some physical equipment that had to be installed in, in conjunction with software and so we ended up renting a half rack at a data center um, and we have a we have a six month lease on that and um, and went out there and got a a, a, a massive um, 10 gigabit connection so that we have the ability to to, to, to host infrastructure and it'll go out to people and, and, and so on and so forth. We don't have to worry about the internet crapping out or anything like that and taking the conference down. And then we drove out to the data center and, and assembled two R410s 
that are virtualized that we're now building the infrastructure. So, th so this is where we're at now. Now what we need to do is we're trying to use Matrix and WebRTC to handle the video side of the participation and that will allow people to join with just a web browser. And unlike Source Connect, uh, they won't have to use uh, Chrome. They can use Firefox, anything that runs on WebRTC. Um, the second thing that we have to we have to spin up is there is some discussion right now on um, whether we're going to have a single stream or we're going to have individual virtual experiences. But if we do the individual virtual experiences, we need if we had four rooms, for example, we would need it, we would need four entire separate teams. Um, I'm one of those people that I will either do something right or we won't do it at all. So if we can't do four team, if we can't do four simultaneous rooms well, then we will just do one single uh, stream, one single room, and then we will just line those speakers up and have them present uh, their material, and then we'll roll to the next one. In between those, of course, we're going to layer in with with how to segments and tutorials and and um, and small little tidbits of essentially what you might find as as part of one of the shows on the on the Destination Linux Network, and so. That's kind of where we're at is is finding out who is available to to do those things and and like I say a lot of people have stepped up but there's just a lot of grunt work to do you know spinning up these things and then essentially you know with Matrix for example it takes all but ten minutes to to set Matrix up in WebRTC but then you have to try from different web browsers and different extensions and what does the audio look like if somebody doesn't have a USB headset do we have to require those if we are going to require headsets for presenters um are we going to send those out are there people that are willing to donate how is that, how are all the logistics of those uh, going to work if speakers are in other countries are we going to send them headsets are we going to tell them that you know and so we're we're defining best practices we're we're doing step-by-step -step, uh, guides i have some of the guys at the shop because obviously we have a little bit of downtime they're making video tutorials to show speakers how to connect into the infrastructure and and how to click and how to test to make sure their audio is working so they can do all that troubleshooting ahead of time and get paired with one of our tech people in case they run into an issue um and so it's just, it's a lot of time. It's not that there's any particular problem that, you know, we can't solve or, or, or don't have the help to solve or anything like that. But just the more people that are, are able and willing to help and, and say, Hey, I, I would like to be a part of this. And I absolutely have, I have some, uh, you know, IT admin expertise. I have some development expertise. I have some uh, spare capital that I'd be willing to donate. I have some equipment, whatever it is. So if anybody has any free time or anybody has uh, any free resource or, or spare resources that they'd be willing to contribute, uh, we're taking volunteers at volunteers at mindripmedia.com. You can send an email and just say, here, here's my expertise. Here's what I'm willing to do. Here's what I'm able to do. And we'd love to have you. We'd love to have you help out uh, and be a part of the team. But I, and a huge thank you to all the people that have stepped up. And, and you know, the, the, the really great thing, this is something I'm really proud of. It has not been from one specific community. You know, it wasn't it wasn't all people from Asno. It wasn't all people from Destination Linux Network. It's people from a bunch of different walks of Linux life. Some people who have no tie to the podcasting community at all. Some people that are in totally different communities that I didn't even think were paid attention to my show, much less uh, uh, listen to to the things that we we talk about and, and the and the and the and the things we put out. And and people have stepped up and said, "Hey, yeah, I'm I would love to be a part of that. I would love to help." And so, just a huge thanks to the Linux community at large for for making it a community event and, and being willing to participate. And I think this is the collaboration that you get in an open source world that you just wouldn't get inside of a proprietary world. There'd be too many people trying to stamp out their, you know, their their corner of the world and their 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 turf. And it, yeah. I, I just I haven't felt that at all. I've just right. felt people are like, hey, you know what, whatever I can do, I'm willing to help. And I uh, that's been a really encouraging and rewarding way to work because the stress level is so low. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time, but there's not a lot of stress. So will people be able to join for a small donation or how is that going to work? Yeah. So if you, I mean, obviously if you right now, I have just been funding everything 
either out of my pocket or 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 out of Volta Speed. And I I don't like asking people to help financially if I'm if I'm being honest, because for the most part, it, just managing that, managing donations coming in, and then and then you know managing responsibly, uh, being transparent about how that money is being spent. That's almost more of a task, and it's almost uh, that's almost a harder challenge for me to overcome than just than just funding the thing. So that that's not necessarily where I need help. But uh, if people have you know if people have somebody has an abundance of money and wants to approach me. All, by all means, we'll find some use for it. But what we really need are, are people that have uh, sysadmin experience, who have time on their hands, or have uh, development experience to help us build the infrastructure, test the infrastructure, and then be available on the weekend of self to help promote and administrate it. Because we're we know that we're going to run into technical challenges. We just don't know which ones. We don't know when, and we don't know who's going to be available at that time. So that's what we're trying to solve right now over the next. And, uh, and we're hoping to have that locked in by Friday. Yeah. So it all sounds. Awesome. And the great thing is you'll be able to utilize this infrastructure, I would imagine, for even when the conference does go in 2021, let's assume it mm-hmm. opens back up, let's hope it does, and you could utilize this virtual technology that you've created so that people with disabilities or can't travel can still enjoy parts of the show. So it actually has a long-standing purpose, yes. I, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, we talked about very hard, you know, we're even this year, there's a lot of consideration and, and, and careful planning is and careful thought is going into what we are going to approach to present virtually because we don't want to rob the actual experience of self in any future year. So if there was, if there was some big whiz bang presentation that was going to be done in person, you're just not going to see that on the, on the virtual experience. And it's not that we couldn't do it virtually. It's not that we don't want to do it virtually. It's that we think there is value in encouraging people to show up and participate in real life. Um, Once we, once we are below that threshold though, everything else uh, everything else is on the table and we want to deliver the best possible virtual experience that we can if it doesn't conflict with what would happen in person. Nice. So Ryan, what have you been up to this week? Well, in this virtual world that we're all having to live in now, I guess it's more comfortable for a lot of us, but we combined our lugs, Michael and I, mm-hmm. from Alabama and Georgia into a virtual conference for the last two months. And so that's what we did yesterday is we had everyone join up on Zoom and kind of hang out virtually there and just discuss Linux and all the different things that projects and things that everybody's up to. And that was a lot of fun. And, you know, there is this piece that's missing, though, Noah, which when I was thinking about your self-discussion that in reality, all those people were there. We were all able to talk and discuss, but that personal connection piece is still gone. And it's hard to really come up with a concept in my head of how do you get over that? How do you make it more interactive when you're doing something virtual? Because while we had great discussion, you're missing that piece where somebody's tinkering with their machine and you can walk up and start helping them tinker with a machine or you know just get more involved. But I think we're all doing the best we can anyways with the technology that we have. You know- you know what's interesting about that? So our Grand Forks lug, which is very, very small, we just have four or five people that come, but we have tried to do with varying degrees of success, a virtual conf, you know, a, a virtualized. I wonder if maybe uh, off the air, we shouldn't have a discussion and, and maybe we could, uh, maybe you guys would be okay if we, um, 
if we combined the or or, uh, or invited the the Grand Forks lug to, to start oh, that joining would be rather awesome. than doing our own yeah. thing. Well, and here's why. You know, we have done. Um, you know, we schedule some things in where we have some remote speakers, people that you know, friends with that Red Hat and stuff like that that come in and give presentations on. You know, like we knew about Rel Eight before uh, Rel Eight went public, right? Everything they talked about at Red Hat Summit was presented at our local luck by somebody at Red Hat. So that's kind of cool. But maybe it makes more sense to get some of those resources all in one pool and say, hey, then everybody can benefit from those things. And then the other side is I'm finding it very difficult to find time to to plan those things, especially right mm. now virtually. So maybe that would be best. To, yeah, I like the idea of having a okay DL lug for that. Yeah, yeah, cool. right. Exactly. Yeah. This might in, in place the of the in place of the local ones for the time being. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it's actually interesting because when you, when Ryan mentioned that, you know how when they, they when it first started happening, like it wasn't changing much of my everyday right. day. And yeah, we were in quarantine before it was cool anyway. Right. Yeah. So it was it's interesting, but also like now once it's been a long time, long enough, it becomes to the point where you're like, now I see what I'm missing, right? Because when we have the conversation, like when I would go somewhere once a month, essentially for anything other than work, and it was to go to my lug. And now that I can't do that, there is a there is a disconnect there. So it's pretty it's pretty interesting that you bring that up. I think that's what makes things like self special. So we can do uh, different virtual conferences and different things to help in that area, but you're never going to replace it completely. And I don't think you want sure. to. I think yeah. that makes it special in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This episode of Destination Linux and the entire DLN network is now sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all of this plus world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. And as I would say, that's darn near free. You also get their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. DigitalOcean also has over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software languages, and frameworks. That means even if you don't use DigitalOcean, which you should, you can still take advantage of all the tutorials that they write out there, and they keep the tutorials updated, which, as Michael and I will talk in the later core story that we're going to cover, going and finding information on things in Linux can be really hard because a lot of the topics and news sources and discussions and things that show up in search engines are completely old and outdated, but not if you're using DigitalOcean and their tutorials. It will tell you right at the top, hey, this is for this version of Ubuntu or whatever you're doing. And so you know that you have the most up-to-date information when you're going there. So get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a $100 credit. That's going to go a long way at $5 for a droplet. $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. So in the community feedback this week, Justin writes us to say, Dear Destination Linux crew, I'm a frequent listener to your program and appreciate what you continue to contribute to the Linux community. I'm an amateur amateur Linux enthusiast and have learned a lot listening to the Destination Linux show, as well as your respective individual programs. To get right to the point, I've been a public school music teacher in New York for nearly 20 years and I'm increasingly becoming concerned about the long-term security of my job. In an attempt to be as pragmatic as possible, I am in the initial phase of trying to determine what alternative profession to pursue in the event that I lose my job. I have an interest in networking, security, and privacy, but not a great deal of experience and nothing close to expertise. 
After contacting a computer science and information technologies department chair at my local community college, I've become confused about initial perception of the job market in this field. The professor in indicated to me that IT jobs in general are dying off. And nowadays, careers in healthcare, inform informatics, and computer science are really exploding and worth pursuing. Before I commit time, energy, and finances to a college program in one of these fields, I would really appreciate your advice and perspective on this issue. Thank you for so much for taking the time to consider my questions and concerns. Sincerely, Justin. This is very interesting, and first we're going to go ahead and just cover the one very big misconception saying that IT jobs are dying off. What? That's very unlikely. And even with situations that we're in right now, there's no, that's not also. Well, I think IT jobs are exploding. Yeah, right I, I was going to say, I'll, I'll make a bold statement. I would I submit to you that if you believe that IT job, there's a particular function of IT that is going, that is becoming less relevant or is on, on the downcline. My, my suggestion is to use, you're probably managing it incorrectly because Everything that we have seen, everything that we have done at Ulta Speed, suggests that IT is moving to a more uh, a more decentralized way of managing things. It is moving towards a um, wider geographical way of managing things. Um, it's moving toward towards a more streamlined way of managing things. Uh, and so I would I would I would highly encourage that person to 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 look at the tooling that they're using and the methodology that they're using and see if there's not something out there that maybe would suggest you well, could do that a slightly different I, way. You know, being in in corporate America, I'm going to tell you a couple of things for your advice here. Number one is don't listen to that person that told you IT market is dropping. In fact, don't listen to any of the news reports that like to say this language is going to be dead in a month or this IT these still are, this is where jobs. all the, this is the Except top 100 jobs that you have to go ignore all of that nonsense. You want to know what the secret is to getting a good job is having a network of people mm -hmm. that you interact with. Going to things like Lugs, going to things like Southeast Linux Fest, participating in communities and areas of the jobs you want to get into, actually going out there and creating things so you have a profile and having names of individuals that know you is how you're going to get a job. There are so many instances that I see constantly where the people who are brought in are not the ones who flood the market with the resume everywhere. That can happen, but rare. The ones who get brought into the big companies everybody wants to work for, and I have friends that work for Google, I have friends that work for Amazon, I have friends that work all over the place is, hey, I know you. There's a position open in our department. Let's bring you over here and get you in. It's a lot of it is who you know. Now you still have to have some skills, right? Uh, so you're going to focus in an area that is of interest to you in the IT market. That is something you're actually going to be passionate about. Some IT project, whether it's hardware, software, that when you pick it up, when you start working on it, you're like, "This is my tool. This is what I'm good at." And then stick with it and ignore all the nonsense of everybody telling you there's no jobs, you're never going to get it. And then network within that field that you want to specialize in. And I promise you, you're going to find out that things are going to work out for you because when people see that you're passionate, it is so true out of the hundreds and hundreds of people that I've interviewed in my life for positions, I know within the first 15 seconds whether I'm hiring that person. Because it's that person that comes in there with that passion and energy. It has nothing to do with them answering the questions right or whether they're sweating or moving or shaking their knees and all the stupid advice you get in interviews. 
it's about that passion that they come in. When that passion exudes off them, I'm like, you're mine. You're coming to work on my team. That's what I want. That's what I go for. And most good managers that you're going to want to work for are that way. That would be my advice. Yeah. I mean, that's all great advice. And I'd also point out that you're talking about picking something that you find interesting and everything. And like, there's going to be something available for that, especially in the IT world. There's so many different types of jobs. Like they also, the guy you're saying, it was like the chair of the computer science group saying that the IT jobs are not there, but computer computer science is there. Like those are basically the same kind of thing. Like you IT jobs are in computer science. So that's kind of weird. But uh, also just to point out that, you know, what Ryan was talking about, like there's jobs available and all kinds of stuff. There's even jobs still available for COBOL developers. And that has been a language that hasn't really been used in 40 years. Wait, no, I read a hundred articles so, that said it's dead. So yeah, I can't, that can't be. Exactly. Yeah, so. But correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, you, you're saying that because you can't teach that kind of a passion to somebody. They either have it or they don't. You can teach exactly. them skills, but you can't teach that. I said this on Noah's show when he was interviewing me. I can te- I can't teach you what your mom and dad were supposed to teach you. I can teach you any of the skills of how to work on networking, how to write software, how to do web development, all of that stuff that's teachable to anybody. But that the passion and the drive and the want to do the work, and I don't have to sit there and babysit you and chase you around and beg and plead for you to do your job. I can't teach you that. You either have that or you don't. I get asked from time to time, how do you motivate individuals? Because they, anybody that has met people that work for us, pretty clear that we, we have pretty passionate people that work with us. And I always tell people, I don't motivate people. I don't, I don't have time to motivate people. I don't care to motivate people. And um, it's, it's frankly, it's too much work to try and motivate people. It's easier to redirect a thoroughbred than it is to try to make a, a to make a thoroughbred out of a, out of a donkey. Yeah. I think in the IT field too, especially one of the things I've noticed is IT is picking up tremendously, especially with what's happened in the world today. So great time to get into the field, but I don't think there's ever a bad time to get into it either. Again, ignore that nonsense you hear out in the news and things, but what is being asked for is people who actually have some social skills and ability to break things down and and, and teach your, you would be surprised how many executives and companies and VPs and CEOs and those who work in the industry go, I'm not surprised at all, don't have any idea about technology. They don't understand it. To have an IT person who has the ability to have social skills or be able to break things down simply, that's why I think Einstein was so successful and considered so brilliant because he could take these very advanced concepts and break them down into something everybody could understand. So as a teacher, I think you actually have an incredible advantage in the IT world because you're yeah. used to teaching, you're used to breaking things down simply, and you're going to find that if you find that thing within IT that you're passionate about, that you're going to move up very quick because a lot of IT people are more internalized. They don't like to socialize. They don't like to talk. But if you have somebody in IT that has both the incredible technical skill and the social skills, they end up moving up the chain very quick because now they're able to translate through all the layers of management and executives. And of course, I'm talking about corporate America because that's where my expertise is in. And you'll find yourself doing very well with that skill. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I didn't even think about the using the the teaching aspect to to be able to climb the, the ladder, so to speak. And that's a fantastic point and very true. All right. Sebastian writes to say, uh, hi, guys, my name is Seb and I am a Linux enthusiast from Poland. Uh, I have comments to the topics you talked about on episode 169. Are you ready? We're okay. ready. Bring it. I think so. <laughs> Bring it, Seb. 
Okay, so uh, number one, the role of open source. You guys listed all the pros but forgot one. When people now have the privilege to have a choice between proprietary and open source, they forget how fortunate they are to have a choice. Without open source, the proprietary software, be it OS, office suite, media editing, would have cost five to 10 times the current price because we know how monopolies work. I mean, that's definitely, definitely true. We did forget that part. (laughs) Yep. That's a good point. I can't argue with that. Continue on, Rocco. We'll find something to argue with here. Okay. Um, Are we going to argue about how to say QT or cute? Yes, it's cute. Okay. (laughs) So on Qt licensing recent news, I am using Qt to develop software on open source models. I'd love to be able to pay for the Qt. I'm going to say QT. Okay. That's that's (laughs) how you want Rocco. You You can say it however you want, even if it's wrong. I'd love to be able to pay QT for the full features scope version of QT and have more of my work automated. But having a small business, I'm not able to afford crazy expensive monthly fees that they offer. So QT seemed to have totally forgotten about this kind of audience like myself. They completely shut the door to all small startups that would like to use QT page closed source models. So PS, just check the QT page again. One developer, one year plan is $5,508. That's it? Wow, what a steal. At least in Poland, that's a lot. I don't care where you are, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot (laughs) regardless, yeah. I I completely agree about the cute thing. It's it's, uh, great, but also their model is a little expensive. So he adds on to it, especially when your business is just to take off and hardly makes any profit at the beginning. P.S. I really enjoy what you guys are doing for Linux, except for what Ryan's doing. Uh, keep up the good work. <laughs> no, oh, Rocco, I'm so sorry. We only make fun of Michael on this show. That oh, might have changed when right. you left. No, 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 yeah, no, no, right. yeah. That's yeah. not how this works. I, I read, I completely see where Rocco got that. It's right there. Somebody in the text, forgot to sure. update. Can confirm that's exactly how this works. We only make fun of Michael. Yeah. No, <laughs> okay. Continue not, on. No. Okay. Keep the show's mood the way it is. The world situation is serious enough. So please don't add any more seriousness to it. Keep it light and fresh as you always do. Thanks for your effort in putting out stupid distro trolling. I'm not an Ubuntu user, but I hate all of this flame hitting on forums. And the last thing is, honestly, Canonical is doing a great job for all Linux. Without Canonical, Linux, the Linux world would have been smaller, poorer, and getting less attention from the business. Yeah, it's an awesome email. Yep, so many great points. The cute thing is solid. Uh, that's very. It's not very good for startups. Uh, we have nothing to argue about yeah. here. Uh, uh, not really. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, also please. the thing about Canonical Noah, is totally true. Yep. Um, did we find the perfect email? GTK has a lot going for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think his last point about Canonical and what would you know the world look like without it is something that I have asked people before, and I've taken a lot of heat for that question and bringing that up in certain spots. What, where would we be without Canonical, uh, without the, the developers that have put all of the work into it? Sure, Linux would still be here. Yeah, I mean, I think open I source completely. would be, not be going away, but they have put in so much to get us to where we are. I think we owe them a lot. Yeah, totally. Canonical is one of those companies that gets so much flack that I don't really know where the flack comes from. Sure, they're the biggest. That's yeah, it. I know, but I mean, like, it's just because they're not the biggest. They're the biggest marketing. They're the biggest to your in your face. But Red Hat's the biggest, and Red Hat gets zero. Like, well, when you're talking about money perspective, yes. But I'm saying, I mean, they're the right. most popular distro, and yes, they're the when you're at the top, share. when you're at the top, no matter what, 
you're going to see. It's almost like when me and Rocco started this Destination Linux journey together, the amount of mail we would get that was negative was pretty small. It was pretty insignificant. Once the show grew, it just, the amount of negative stuff continues to go. And I think it's unfortunately just a part period of being a business. And and it's not like Canonical doesn't make mistakes because they have, but you know, I think a lot of it honestly is just the fact that they're the biggest and they're the biggest target. And if you have a problem with Linux or something going on with Linux, you're going to go there. But I I just want to mention too, that I really appreciate the fact of him pointing out the mood of the show. Michael, me and Noah have really spent a lot of time talking about this, a lot of time off air about making sure that the mood for this show that we redirected, especially during this time, but in general, to keep it more happy and keep it more fun and to try to make sure that you get a break from the rest of the world when you're listening to this show. So the fact that somebody noticed is really appreciated and we, we really thank you for bringing it out. Yeah, very much. It's it's definitely one of those things that we were very conscious about and wanted to make sure that one that we wanted to give an outlet to people not having to worry about all the stuff that you're already worried about. So it's just it, it's I, we do appreciate very much that you know people recognizing that because that is one of the main things we like doing about the show is to have fun and not have to stress about everything because there's already enough stress in the world. And also, uh, definitely the the distro trolling thing, you know, because sometimes you'll see some people, you know, make jokes about various different distros. There are going to be some flame flame wars in certain cases for people who actually legitimately do it. But there's also, I think, the majority of people who are doing it are more doing it in a, you know, a fun banter way. Was it really like a flame war to say Arch is the greatest distro? No, no, no. I'm not saying you're doing the flame war. You're wrong, but oh, I'm not saying it, you're doing the flame war. I'm just wh- saying what, other wait, people. Wait, what? What? Huh? I'm not wrong. I'm never wrong. Oh, did you? You heard that part? Okay, my bad. <laughs> we love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or video that may get incorporated in the show. We invite you to send those emails or links to comments at destinationlinux.org. So for our core story this week, we want to talk about swap partition versus swap file. And I love when Michael and I were planning different show stories, he put, what's the deal with that? In quotes. <laughs> like, what is that supposed to, what, what's the deal with a file or a partition? It was like, I wanted to kind of do like a Seinfeld where like, what's the deal with swap files? <laughs> so for those who don't know, swap partition, swap files, what are they? What do they do? What's the difference between them? That's what we're going to get into in this story. And Noah, what do you know about swap files and swap partitions? Well, I think anytime you start talking about swap, uh, the first thing that we have to identify is the reason there, because there are some people out there, right, that incorrectly say that in today's computing, modern computing era with 64, 128, or 256 gigabytes of RAM, that swap is no longer necessary. And to those people, what I would tell you is that when the computer runs out of memory, the the kernel has one of two choices. It either begins to swap out less critical processes, which slows them down. Of course, the process for swap, if somebody's not aware, is we're taking things out of memory and storing them on disk. Disk doesn't function as fast as memory, so it slows the overall performance of that particular processes down. But the kernel has one of two choices. It either chooses to swap those things out and 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 prioritize the most important processes or it panics. Those are the two choices. And so if you don't want your kernel to panic, and we don't, then you want to have swap space. Doesn't matter how much RAM you have, because 
unused RAM is wasted RAM. So we want to fill RAM up as much as possible uh, when we're using the machine. And then if we run into a problem, then we want to be able to swap those uh, those processes out. So I guess that's where I would start that discussion. Yeah, so the primary function swap space, substitute disk space for RAM memory. And I think you nailed it and explained exactly how that works perfectly. But most of us who've been in Linux, even myself for the last four years, I guess I've been in Linux now, have been told, hey, you need to have a swap partition that is two times or three times the amount of RAM that you have. That's kind of when I started what the general idea was. But that's something that's kind of lingered out in the community that's not necessarily true anymore. I mean, Who wants it wasn't to tackle as, that one. It hasn't been true for a very long time. Like as soon as we got into the realm of like the standard being four gigs, like the like the base level being four gigs, then you know, you're having twelve gigs, sixteen gigs, thirty-two gig machines, and you don't need triple the amount of RAM. I mean, you barely you don't even need double the amount of RAM for that kind of thing. But like so for example, if you wanted to do hibernation you do need some kind of swap in order to do hibernation. And the typical thing is the minimum you want for that is to the exact same amount you have for your RAM. If you have less than that, you can't do hibernation. So, But the, the average suggestion is 1.5 times for hibernation. If you don't need hibernation, you don't even need to do a full you know, one-to-one version. You can do less than that. Depending on how much RAM you have, you could get away with doing a smaller partition or a smaller swap file. Whatever you want to do, there's, you know, you don't have to do that. The only time where you really have to do the two times method or whatever is when you have very low RAM, like you have a really old computer. Like if you have uh, two gigs of RAM or less, you might want to do a double or more. Four gigs, I would say that is probably fine to just do the four gig thing. Or if you wanted to do the, you know, one and a half times, you could do six gigs for the hibernation. That's a possibility as well. But once you get into the lower levels of, say, you know, 512 megs, it's probably a good idea to get three times RAM then or a Raspberry Pi because you it's just get a Raspberry Pi. Right. Well, it's interesting. Fedora has an installation guide and their guide in general says if you're running two gigabytes to eight gigabytes, make a swap space equal to the RAM. So not 1.5 times more, not two times more, just equal. If you have eight to 64 gigabytes of RAM, 1.5 times over 64 gigabytes is dependent on your workflow here. So they have a guide. Ubuntu has a guide that you can use that they have different recommendations. One of the things I noticed though, is I was looking, I put some information in here, Michael, that you corrected going back to what we were talking about earlier. Because some of the frequently asked questions on the Ubuntu site that I went to and things about swap were outdated and things. And this is kind of going back to our topic of making sure that all of your knowledge or information isn't based on what you see out there in in the news. And there's just a lot of old articles and things that don't get updated. They probably get forgot that they even exist. And so this can mislead people for a long time. Yeah, there's there's definitely some issues of having old guides that are not updated that have like that for example there's quite a few things that if you look for like if you look for what's uh, swap file versus partition right now you might find guides that are you know five years old or something like that and they'll might say that butterfs doesn't work with swap files that's not true you can use a swap file with butterfs and that but that's you need a certain kernel version which is 5.0 or higher and you can do it but you'll find guides that are that are saying that you can't do that and you also will find guides that says that swap file is slower than a partition. 
And that's because that's a really, really old one saying like before 2.6 was released, the versions would partitions were better. But once you get into like the newer current kernels, that's not a problem anymore. They're effectively the same speed. And there, there's different benefits and values, you know, here and there, depending on which one you want to get, because it's easier to do a partition. There's also more values to do a swap file. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I think that overall, you, you know, make sure you're looking at what the guides that you're looking for and see if there's any like if you can find a date for them, that is very important. And especially when it's something that can to do with like your main system core structure, like doing swap and stuff like that. But there's a variety of different variables that uh, relate to whether you should do a partition or a, fo- a swap file. And I would say, personally, I would prefer a swap file. And I, that's not necessarily you need to do a swap file. It doesn't really matter either way. It's just I prefer a swap file because when I don't need a swap, I can just remove the swap file and have more space on my disk just in case. Now, when I'm going to do anything like, for example, recording a show that has dependency to make sure that I have swap available just in case, then I'll create a swap file because with the, the best thing about swap files is that you can create them whenever you need them. And that's a, a, a good approach. And it's also an approach that Ubuntu has taken. So if you take the if you look at the guide on Ubuntu that we'll have a link in the show notes, it's out of date by a lot. Uh, it says basically to use a partition. Yet by default, Ubuntu, since 2017, has a swap file by default. So, you know, that's an example of like there is going to be some guides that are not up to date. And uh, but the I think the majority of the time you'll find distros still using partitions. But I think either way, you're you're pretty much good to go. You were mentioning earlier that Fedora suggests a certain amount, like, you know, the exact, I would say a minimum of the same that you have if you want to do any sort of hibernation and also a little bit more, but you don't need to go into anything. Anything beyond 1.5 is not necessary once you get to the eight gigs or more. However, uh, I would also say that if you're not doing hibernation, you don't really need to worry about having exact one-to-one or more because if you're not... Well, that's the great part of a swap file, though, yeah. is you can increase it if you want to make it bigger, if you're yes. finding it's not working for you, or even decrease it. Although I see people, I was looking through a lot of the forums who were changing up their swap files and things and ended up messing their system up. So I guess for somebody highly technical, it's super easy to add one, it looks super easy, but if you're modifying or changing sizes and stuff, I guess you can mess stuff up uh, much like any time. I guess you're in there playing with different partitions. Well, that, that was my question for you, Ryan. How detailed of a process is it to make a swap file? To make a swap file, I think it's just a couple of commands that I could see, but honestly, I don't play with this at all. Whatever it defaults in most of the distros is what I leave. If they create, if they suggest creating a separate partition, I do that and I set up the space based on the recommendation. If they use a swap file like Ubuntu, then I leave that as default. And I've never had an issue with it personally. I don't know if any of you have a specific use case where you have used one. I know there are use cases where you'd want to use the others, but I don't know if anybody on this panel has purposely gone in and modified one from the other. Uh, oh, well, modifying from partition to file or file to partition, yeah. that is not a good idea. Uh, you can create some big problems there. Uh, however, modifying a, an existing swap file or deleting it and making a new one, those are totally fine to do. It depends on, you know, you, if you're going to get ex- extra space and you need extra swap space, it's better to just delete the swap you have and then make a new swap file rather than trying to resize that one. Uh, but it is it is a few commands. Like I wouldn't say that it's easy. 
it's it's when when you said it's kind of like just a few commands, yeah. But also, you well, have it's to, easy for geeks like us, but right, probably not sure. your everyday user. Sure, yeah. it's just I would say that the suggestion that you're you you what you do of just doing whatever the distro defaults to, I think that is a solid option. I also like the fact that some distros will have like, do you want hibernation, and it will give you the full one to one, and if you right. don't want hibernation, it'll give you a like the half version or whatever, and they'll they'll give you that option, and I really like that as an option. But I don't think that you really need to have. Either one, like it's, we, I mean, you should definitely have one if you want any kind of swap, because that's if you want to have that protection and just in case, you should do it. Uh, but I don't think that it matters which one you get. I choose swap file just because I like to be able to change what I'm doing to based on, you know, the, because of the nerddom level, like that I've been using Linux for a while. I, I'm comfortable with it, but I wouldn't suggest people change whatever the distro comes with. I think that's a good policy. So, Noah, do you have a preference of which one you utilize? You know, typically what I will do is if I will contact the software manufacturer for what the purpose of the server is, you know, the, the reality is what the server is going to be doing is going to be a far more accurate predictor of what the configuration on that server should be rather than trying to trust the default rules king of any particular software manufacturer. And I would apply that equally from Red Hat to Canonical, right? And so when we, I'll give you an ex- first example comes to mind, when we set up a chemical calculation uh, server that was essentially it was a web-based thing that the uh, a very powerful server like a $25,000 server would calculate these chemical formulas for chemistry uh, biochemistry students at a university and because it was such an expensive machine that was required to do these calculations essentially what would happen is each student would take their laptop connected to the network they would submit these chemical calculations to the this very expensive server it would crunch the numbers and then it would spit back the results and they could download them a few minutes later and um, what we did in that case, when we st- when we were looking at how much space do we want, do we want SSDs or do we want spinning disks? If we want, do we want a mixture of them? Because sometimes you want SSDs for for data that's that's in a hot cache, and then you have uh, slower spinning disks later on. Where should the swap? Should it be a swap file? Should it be a swap partition? If it's a swap file or swap partition, how big should it be? And you know, and all of those things we were able to obtain by by working with the software manufacturer and saying, hey, what do you recommend? What do you see works really well? And they, it turns out, they had some very specific uh, best practices that you could use to include um, best practices for swap files. And so, what I would suggest is, I wouldn't say that there's a one size fits all for every server. Mm-hmm. I would say it depends on the end result of that server. And I think the best way to do that is to look into what other people or other companies are doing with servers of similar uh, purpose. That's yeah. a good point. I would say that I, I would agree with that. And I'd also say that another benefit of having, you know, that because there's so much flexibility with this, this topic, really, if you have a swap partition and you don't have enough space on your swap partition, it is possible to do swap partition and a swap file at the same time. It's not ideal, but you can do it. And also there are some guides that will tell you to put the swap on a different drive as possible. And just so you can have like more performance that way. And there's, there's so many different configurations that I think that, you know, there, there's, there's arguments for partition. There's arguments for the file. There's arguments for using what's default, not using what's default. And I think until you get to the experience level where you are comfortable with the risk of potentially messing up stuff, then just use whatever comes as default because I think that they're typically the you know they're using what is the best practice on their system because they're designing it for that structure and I would right. say go with that. 
And the good news is now everybody knows what a swap file and swap partition that they exist and what they get used for. So Ubuntu yep. utilizes the swap file. I know a lot of our audience utilizes Ubuntu. So you're probably using Ubuntu if you've uh, swap file if you have used Ubuntu with its stock configuration and didn't manually set up your own partitions. Yeah. And also just a real quick there, there's another side of this topic where there are some, some small groups where they would say that swap is not necessary and you shouldn't even use it. I would just want to point out to them that it's, if you don't, you don't want, understand how the kernel works. Yeah. That, that, that mainly because your system will panic if you don't have any swap and you need it. Uh, but also the main thing is that, it's more of a precaution thing anyway, because why not? You're not going to have any negative to have swap. But if you don't have swap and you run into the problem of needing swap, you will have a big problem. So the better option is to just use it anyway, even if you don't think you need it. If, if like some people say, well, I have 32 gigs of RAM or I have 64 gigs of RAM, I don't need swap. You might not necessarily need it most of the time, but when you do need it, you're going to wish you did. So just have a little. Yeah, I have bit. 64 gigabytes of RAM that runs on PCIe 4 at 8 gigabytes a second. And when OBS had its memory issue, it zapped all 64 gigabytes of those and yep. went into my swap space, which kept my machine from completely locking up. So even though I have 64 gigabytes of RAM on a 4.0 Express, which most people do not have, I still maxed it out and it allowed me to have a fail safe there. So I would suggest having a swap file or a swap partition, one or the other. Yeah, that's well, a very to good add example. add on to that, we have had conversations like this on Biddle, and you know there are a lot of people that will tell you, hey, I, I have 32 gigabytes of RAM. I don't, need, I don't do anything major like video editing. I don't need it. And you may not need it for that scenario, but you do run the risk of having issues. But the one thing that was brought up, and I think it was Alan Pope that brought it up, was there are programs that are designed in a way that they look for swap regardless if they need it or not. And that can also cause issues. So that's another reason why you might want to have that's it. That's a great point. That's a good point too. Yeah. Like there's, there's many reasons to just have it and there's very few reasons not to have it other than just not wanting to. But I would say that, you know, have something there because especially the, the examples of there's applications that will want it. And there's other examples where Ryan gave where they're just things happen with computers because, you know, software is not perfect and, randomness can happen the obs thing hit me too and i saw my swap going up and at one point i had 32 gigs of ram and one gig of swap and that is no longer the case because yeah that came into a big problem yeah so up next in the show we're going to go to some news and we are talking about the ubuntu 2004 remixes not the regular releases but the remixes because well, all the different, the main distro of Ubuntu gets a ton of attention, obviously, and also the flavors get a ton of attention. I put the, a lot of attention on it for this week in Linux, but we want to give some attention to the remixes. So we covered 2004 in episode 171, including the secret changes that were happening because they snuck them into the manuals. Rude. And also, uh, <laughs> we, we're, but we're going to talk about remixes this time because, uh, for example, like Ubuntu Cinnamon. Uh, the Ubuntu Deepin version, Umix OS, Pop OS, those kinds of things we're going to talk about for the releases. That Pop were. OS isn't a remix. I mean, it's a derivative, but it's kind of a remix because they also release it's in the same... It's not a remix. I mean, Dude, it's kind of a remix you, because okay. it's, 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 it depends on what you're talking about. Let, we're not going to go. Are we going to go into the flavor versus remix? Let's well, here's, no, here, here, here's the thing. Let's, just, let's start here. If, if you have an Ubuntu 2004 base and somebody mm -hmm. takes a desktop environment and modifies it and then 
and then gives it a different name and says, oh, how well, what else would you call that other than a remix? I mean, a derivative, well, I, have, I guess. I have complete respect but it, no, for you, no. Noah, but it, well, we're supposed to argue against Michael. Right, but so here's the problem. There are like official flavors, and that's a defined thing, but like yeah. everything else based on Ubuntu is a remix, is it not? Yeah, it's. I mean, basically, I would say derivative and remix are the same kind of thing. I consider no. it a reflavor. All right, that's, a that you can't you can't that. add them together. That's not that's not how it works. <laughs> I you're making I'm a my words. of a reflavor, yeah, but um, I think a remix here, is considered a different desktop environment than what they have already. Because you can in System yes. seventy six's credit, their version of GNOME is becoming significantly different than the stock version of GNOME. Right? Totally. True, very true. Yeah. yeah. I think it, I think that remakes is in like there's a lot of different nuance between those like different what they different what they mean and everything but they're all very similar with slight alterations so like you could call those remixes and derivatives because they're basically both or or reflavors now apparently because we made up a new yes I coined a new term yes finally apparently. Oh, love we it. just make up stuff <laughs> that's the whole show that's, how do you think we got through 172 episodes. <laughs> But anyway, the quick like quick synopsis of what a remix is is that it is a derivative of Ubuntu that is based on the same version that is released of the current state. So like you know if you ta- if there's sometimes they're based on LTSs, sometimes they're based on just a general sense of like keeping up to date with Ubuntu, but they're not trying to be flavors. Or sometimes they are trying to be flavors, like in the case of Ubuntu Cinnamon and Ubuntu Deepin. Uh, they are attempting to at some point be a flavor, but in order to become a flavor, you first have to have a certain amount of releases and to show that you are a reliable developer and that you will be there when they do actually announce it. So just by creating one, you know, that's kind of like a, it's kind of like sort of a minor league of flavors or I don't know. But uh, so we put, we talked about a few of these. And first of all, we have Ubuntu Cinnamon, uh, one of the newest members of the remix groups. Uh, this is actually taking cinnamon and putting it on top of Ubuntu, and I, I I understand why they chose to call it Ubuntu cinnamon because that's kind of the cadence that all these other flavors are trying to are using, where they take the name of it and put the de on there. But I really wanted it to be Cinnabuntu, but okay, maybe not. Cinnabuntu uh, is a really good name for this. Rocco, has this been one that you all have tested on Biddle yet? We have not tested the 2004 releases because, you know, obviously that just came out. So right. we are in the middle of doing them. But Ubuntu Cinnamon will be one of them. But Joshua uh, does come on Biddle and has talked before about Ubuntu Cinnamon. And I think this specific remix is important because there are so many people that enjoy the Cinnamon desktop. And yet there's no official flavor. So if you want cinnamon, you have to go with Linux Mint. But this would offer people who maybe don't agree with some of the practices of Linux Mint. It offers them a basically an Ubuntu that they can use and enjoy. So I think it's awesome. Doesn't Mint die if, let's say everybody just goes and starts using Ubuntu Cinnamon. I mean, doesn't that desktop kind of start dying off because the Mint team works on that as well? Or is it two separate teams? They work on it as well. Like the Mint team work on Cinnamon, yes. Um, I wouldn't say that this would be a, a dying off. I think that the Ubuntu Cinnamon's approach is different than the way that Linux Mint does it because Linux Mint's trying to be a beginner distro for everything and Ubuntu Cinnamon's kind of trying to be a Cinnamon, like the best you can have for Cinnamon, like specifically for Cinnamon rather than having all the other pieces that Mint add on top of it. 
that's what I think that they're going for. Maybe, maybe not. But I think that's that the main purpose is to have the best experience you can have with Cinnamon on Ubuntu versus having a Linux Mint where it's trying to do all those different pieces. I still struggle with this one. I just feel like people should use Linux Mint for an Ubuntu base with Mint. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having this distro or anything like that. I'm just saying I, I struggle with it because I just feel like just use Mint if you like Cinnamon. That's supposed to be the premium Cinnamon experience there is on Mint, the people who created it. Well, there's also the argument of having certain features that you don't have. A bunch of Cinnamon will roll every six months, you know, theoretically. And the Linux Mint is stuck on the LTS for two years every time. So you're always waiting for two years to get to the main core updates. That's a good point. Okay. And, and I don't think sense. that Linux Mint has the So like 20.10 and things like that, you're going to get on right. Ubuntu Cinnamon that you wouldn't get. I, right. I get that. And I don't think Linux Mint has the, role, has the hardware enablement thing. They do have the ability to change your kernel, but they don't really have that enablement automatic stuff. I don't think anyway. And I think that there's, you know, Ubuntu Cinnamon does have that benefit as well. So if you wanted to use it, and also in theoretically, they may be able to get the backports for the hardware enablement on the 2004 as well. Uh, so there's there's some reasons to do okay, it, but I'm I I'm sold now. I'm a little more sold now. All Let's right. put it that way. Cool. Uh, next, so what's next on our list? Next on the list is Ubuntu, Ubuntu DDE or Deepin. Uh, you just change it to Deepin, you know. Uh, Ubuntu DDE is a remix that uses the Deepin desktop environment for on, on Ubuntu, and it's basing on 2004 LTS, just like the rest. And this is an interesting thing because Deepin is a very pretty, nice-looking DE that is functionally a little clunky. I mean, my experience, I, I think that it's it looks great, and then also like ah, uh, and then it just keeps like, puts in like some barriers for me. Uh, but I think that there's some in- some. You know, ideas that they could take for Deepin and putting it on Ubuntu, you can benefit from having that because Deepin's regular version is based on Debian, which is cool, but also there's some issues with having older packages and that kind of thing. Uh, And I think this is a really interesting idea. What do you guys think? Look, I think Deepin is the most beautiful desktop environment out there. And I know people disagree. And I know this is highly personal, right? When I say something's beautiful to me, it doesn't mean it's going to be beautiful to you. But every time I've booted into Deepin, I just, I'm in awe. Like this is this is what everything should look like. But then the clunkiness that you mentioned is the same experience I have. Things don't quite work smoothly or as they're supposed to. And that just throws me off every time. I don't know if anybody else has a different experience, but that's been mine. I have not tried the 2004 release myself, but hearing from other people that have, they have changed a few things around in this release. And specifically, one would be the software center. So it does not come with the deep end software center. It comes with the Ubuntu software center, which uses different repositories than the normal deep end desktop environment uses. So that is a plus where, you know, if that was a concern from before, right. um, that would be a benefit to you to use this one here. Uh, as far as the clunkiness, I had never spent a whole lot of time with it to say it was clunky. I did not care for the icon only have to hover over the icons to see what that icon was for type thing. But it is a beautiful desktop. There's no question about it. And if Rocco says that, that means something because he's looking for every pixel. I almost forgot about that troll. (laughs) Every pixel has to be perfect in it. So if he says it's gorgeous, it's it's got to be gorgeous. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, I can find fault with it if you like. (laughs) He's like, I can go look for those four pixels. (laughs) 
No, have you ever used Deepin? Ever had a desire to use it, or is it just something that's not I, on your radar? I, I, I think I, I think I went through it one time for a uh, specifically for show content, just to do a review, so I could see what it was about. Did not find it particularly uh, appealing to me. I, I, I'll be honest with you. The more I use KDE, and I, I don't, I really don't mean to be a fanboy, but the more I use the KDE desktop environment, the more I'm convinced that there really isn't anything that can compete on the level of K- that KDE does. I was sitting with my wife uh, this weekend. We were going through some house planning stuff because obviously we're going to knock out some uh, some home improvement stuff while we're at home. And the ability just to, to write, I kept having this window that kept going down and we had our notes up. And I just, I went, here's something I can do with KDE without even having to look. I just know there's going to be a way to do this. I'm sure there's a way to make this thing just stay right where it is. I right click on it. I go over to more actions. I click on keep above other windows. And all of a sudden, the notes that my wife and I are working on now stay perfectly in the exact spot on the screen where I left them, no matter what else we're doing. And it's just that kind of flexibility, like on the, on the fly, figuring out without ever having to read a manual, I might add that just ruins other desktop environments for me. And so when I look at other ones, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I can see how somebody would like that. Katie's better, but I can see how somebody would like that. <laughs> This is I, this is funny because it sounds like this is this is it sounds like you you were talking saying things that sound like me about five years ago and it's fantastic. I a hundred percent I will a hundred percent give credit to the fact that Michael has been telling me and everybody else to use KDE for as long long as I can remember. If there's a question about KDE, Michael was the guy to go to, and I I just you will pry the KDE desktop from my cold dead body. Yeah, yeah, they they utilize it KDE just. They have everything that other people are still catching up with because I feel like the people who create it utilize it to its fullest capability, meaning they don't have just one workflow that they make their desktop environment work for. They have people who have all kinds of different workflows that they make their desktop environment work with. And that's what makes KDE so interesting because as much as I love disagreeing with Michael, I literally live for it every single week. KDE, that's true. You know, it's scaling options, its ability to right click anywhere. Like you said, you want to change the clock, you don't have to go open some settings menu, then try to navigate to where they might have put that, and then find that set. It's just right click, change time clock. But and I use that example a lot because nothing annoys me more in a DE than right clicking on the time, which usually defaults to some 24 hour time, which I like the 12 hour time, and then realizing, oh, I can't right click here, I've got to go find where in the settings. Something as simple like an XFCE where you just right-click the time and change it. KDE, right-click the time and change it. I've got to go find, figure out how their flow is, and it, it annoys me. KDE does a fantastic job. Fractional scaling with when we had 2K monitors, which you know a lot of people are still using 1080 monitors, but if you're looking at any new monitor, you're probably going to see a lot of options out there now that are fantastic prices for 2K and things. Other DEs still struggling with fractional scaling. KDE's had it nailed down forever i mean you can't argue with that it's just the way it is yeah there's some there's some things that i would say that you know you're right about the clock editing the clock is really simple there are some things you do have to dig around the system settings to get to those not perfect for sure but what i want to say is that i think that you know one of the things that i like about deep and what deepens doing is that they realized that their own structure was not as optimal as it could be so they dropped the window manager they were making and implemented kwin very interested to check out to see what they have done with Kwin in this latest release because I do think there's a lot of being you know, willing to change goes a long way. Yeah, the fact that they're and also changing a big fundamental piece because Kwin is great, but also it it's it's typically only associated to Plasma. So I'm very interested to see what they do 
with Deepin uh, because there's a lot of there's a lot of great things about Kwin, and I think that if Deepin implements it properly, they could have both a very high polish and a very nice functionality. So I look forward to seeing more about that. There's also a thing that I think is very interesting that is being done by TG Tech, and that is Umix OS. And Umix OS is something I think is one of the best uh, DEs that we've ever had in terms of, of des- uh, Linux in general. I am a big fan of the Unity desktop environment, and I have been for a very long time. There are certain aspects yeah. of Unity that are so innovative and so interesting, and it's a shame that Polished. Canonical decided to drop it, but uh, I understand why they did. It was a financial thing, but overall, I think that Unity is is a really, really good DE, and I was also super happy to see that uh, TG Tech has decided to take Umix OS and you know revitalize Unity in a way. They also have a Mate version, but the Unity one is the more important thing to me, in, in my opinion. One an, an interesting thing is that they released 2004 like a week before Ubuntu, so that was pretty interesting that they well, did that. Well, TG Tech is insanely talented dev out there. I guarantee you, you're using one of his tools probably at some point. Time Shift, oh yeah, I have. UKUU, mm-hmm. Umix, Conkey Manager, Battery Monitor, Discman, Groot, Aptic, this dude all responsible for the, the software packages here also creates Umix OS. Uh, I really recommend giving donations or looking at if you use any of the software to this guy, because he does an incredible amount of work out there for the open source community, brilliant projects that we all take advantage of. So when he creates an OS, I'm instantly interested in checking it out. Yeah. And I really like the fact that he's putting the effort into a unity version. Cause I think that, you know, I hope that, you know, there's some kind of thing that they could do to, I don't know, revitalize the whole project. Yeah, I, I, I hope Canonical decides to like, hey, you know what, let's just bring Unity back or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I think Unity is a very misguided or not misguided, but a very misunderstood DE. And I think that a lot of people just didn't give it a chance. But when it was out, so that the point where when it finally did come, when people finally started giving a chance was already too late. And then they saw how good it was. But uh, I, I started using it in 2011, and I, I, I kept using it for a very long time until I found Plasma, which was then, you know, Plasma took over. But you uh, know, Unity I, is such a good I, DE. I understand where you're coming from, Michael. And I agree with you to an extent in that everybody railed on Unity while it was out. Then once it was gone, everybody kind of backed off. But I, I submit to you that the reason for that is not necessarily so much that people didn't realize how good it was. It was the fact that it was such a canonical specific thing, right? If Unity had been a project and had been out there and there would have been an effort on Canonical's part to get Unity uh, incorporated into Fedora, incorporated into OpenSUSE, incorporated into some of the other distributions. I think it very well may have had a different play out back in 2017. I think what ended up happening was Canonical got to a point. They said, we want to go public. How do we go public? Well, we need to get our company more profitable shape. What do we need to do? We need to trim fat. Where where is our fat? Well, we are continually maintaining a desktop environment for only our distro that nobody else uses. Nobody else contributes to. We have to do all the work. We have to do all the fixes. We have to do all the updates. We have to do all the patching. That's just not something that we want to do. So what should we go to? Well, let's go to GNOME. That is the desktop that literally every other desktop uh, distribution is using with the with the with the exception of of a couple minor players. But like there were there are so many 
uh, distributions that that defaulted to GNOME. And so I think that made a lot of sense for for Canonical to, to go that route. I think when you start looking at why people didn't choose Unity, though, what had really had nothing to do with the lack of polish or lack of quality of Unity and much more to do with the fact that it was only for one distribution. Because when I look, especially when I was evaluating um, 2004 this week and, and I lived on it for for like six days. And what I found was that um, they're, they're just now in 2004 really getting back to the level of polish that Unity have. And I wouldn't even say they're necessarily there as it relates to, to uh, multi-monitor support and even some of the theming, like you right-click and some of the dialogues don't actually translate to dark mode. That would have never happened in Unity. I mean, that was the most mm-hmm. uh, cohesive desktop environment ever. It was also uh, very innovative, so, yeah. It was innovative. It was. It absolutely was. And so I think there were a lot of really good points that got overlooked with Unity. And I think the reason that it got passed up was because it was seen as kind of a, a an ugly redheaded stepchild for, from one particular company. I don't and, think that it was ne- like when you're saying that people looked at it in the sense of, you know, it was because Canonical didn't, you know, make it support. I don't think one, they should have even had to have made it support because it was open source. People could have ported it if they wanted to. And it well, was available they- on Arch. It wasn't just the only distro. <laughs> But why would they want to why would it? They, because it was a yes. because it's a good DE. And the whole point is, is people didn't give it a chance because it's from Canonical. In my opinion. Okay, so let me ask you something. I think let me it was just something. like the hate mongering of Canonical back then. Let me let me so okay, let's play now, this really. out. So let's play this out. So Fedora comes out and says, you know what, that Unity, man, they really got something going for us. We should make that the default desktop distribution for Fedora. So they go they go and do that. And all of a sudden, Red Hat says, you know, we got to fix this thing or we got to tweak this thing or this stupid global menus thing, which was the dumbest thing Unity ever had. Uh, no, my mind does not. OK, well, my mind will not send my cursor up to the very top of the screen unless there's something there to click on. So when I have to first send my mouse up there to the top of the screen and then I have to click on the file menu and I'm not the only person that had that problem because I would. I, I hated it as well. Okay, just, well, to be fair, sense, let's right? also but, point out the fact that me, you're maybe you're not aware with the local integrated menus that they had in Unity where you could just hover to the title bar and they would just it would display the stuff right up. on the title bar. That's what I'm saying, though. I'm not going to send my mouse up there. My mind doesn't send my mouse up there unless I see what I'm looking for to begin with. But what do you mean? The difference is, between where the main menu is and where the title bar of the window you're using is is right next to each what other. What I'm saying is if I don't see a file menu, I'm not going to send my mouse up there to click on file when Correct. I want to. Sure. Want okay, to that's fair. Click. But but here's what, the overall point I'm getting at is when Red Hat un, unquestionably looks at that and goes, well, that's stupid and says, hey, we want to fix that. And Canonical has the ability to say, nope, that's not what we're going to do. This is the way it is. We're doing this global menu thing. We don't care if people like it or not. When that kind, there's not a lot of incentive for other distributions and other organizations to use that desktop environment as as it is where you have with the GNOME Foundation, which all they're doing is focusing on, the, and it has nothing to do specifically with any one company. They're just essentially trying to make a desktop environment. And GNOME is heavily, to the tune of thousands of people, contributed for by Red Hat. I mean, well, um, yeah, Red so Hat makes I, GNOME, so it makes sense that they would do that. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, they don't make GNOME, though. I mean, it's They do. They pretend thing. they it, don't, they, but they do. Let's just be honest. They, they, have, pre- they have so no. many employees that work on GNOME. They have so many employees that work on Fedora, and they say it's just but an there incubator, is, but we're, but don't, we're not. Is, but they, do, is, they are right. fantastic at having separation between what they what they sponsor and what they are actually credited for. They do like the same thing. Like Red Hat does not get any hate and I don't want them to get hate. I'm not saying that you should hate them. I think Red Hat does a lot of great stuff. I'm just saying the way that Red Hat does stuff is a very interesting approach because they isolate themselves from the hate because everything that they make that is hated doesn't get associated to them. Like they are literally the creators of System D. 
But they don't get hate from System D, but System D gets a ton of hate. And the guy who works on System D, who created System D, gets a ton of hate, even though he's an employee of Red Hat. It's a very weird thing. And I don't like the hate in general. And I think that's one of the main reasons I brought it up is because I don't like the hate mongering that we have in certain aspects of Linux is disappointing. And I think that Unity is one of those examples where we had something very, very good that people didn't give it a chance because it was just cool. The community got it wrong, right? Yes, it was just cool to hate Canonical, and I don't like that kind of thing. Like, well, I'll if tell it's you, not four good, years fair ago, enough. But four years ago, when I started and I started my thirty days of Linux, uh, the hate that I got before anything Ubuntu, those did happen. People telling me to switch from Ubuntu, but was Unity. It was all Unity, and it. I remember immediately investigating what are other DEs because everybody hates. Unity. That was clear and blinking in my mind. And if you look at my first videos, I was using Unity and there was just this massive amount of hate for it. And it's so weird of an experience for me now to hear everybody talking about how much they miss it because my first experience in Linux was how much everyone seemed to hate it. Yeah, but I I would have to say that I was one of those. I was a culprit of that. I added to the not hate, but I added to making fun of Unity without ever trying it and without ever giving it a a, a, a worthy try. So I would I installed Unity when it was out, and it was so different that I was not used to it, and I didn't like it, and I left it lay. And it wasn't until right before that they shut it down that I actually picked it up and said, you know what, I'm I'm going to give this a try, and I'm going to open my mind and say, is this any better? That's when I started to like Unity. So yeah. I think there's a lot of people that fall into that. That's an yeah. interesting point because you later came on and it was in episodes of DL where you challenged me to use GNOME because I used to talk trash about GNOME and I used it for 30 days and went, you know, it's not for me, but it's pretty good. I like it. It's actually got a lot of things that are pretty awesome. So it's not, again, I'm not, it wasn't the one I picked, but I think people do need to have an open mind to absolutely some of the things that we initially have impressions of and say, well, this doesn't work for me versus I hate it because it doesn't work for me. You can't look at other use cases or scenarios to say, well, actually this has a, this has a place in the market. I didn't bring the, I didn't mean to bring up this topic, but I'm glad that I did. And and it is something that I like the taking consideration, like if you haven't tried it, maybe your, your opinion is, you should think about the fact that your opinion is flawed before you, say stuff about it right and i think that's what we all learned you know and also, honestly it's not even i'm not even taking you know tra- jabbing at rocco like that i did the exact same thing but in the reverse situation where i made fun of plasma for being bloated for a very long time and then when someone convinced me to actually try it because they gave me this you know very for me it took a weird esoteric thing to convince me to try it but then i tried it and i was like oh wow i i missed the boat really big on this one and there's and the same thing happened to Unity. Like Unity has same thing happened now that you're trying Arch. You were so wrong about it, and now you see the light. It's amazing. Well, I'm, okay, uh, I'm gonna have to switch immediately. Um, so there's there's so many good things about all of these projects that people need to can give consideration. Like yes, you can find flaws. Yes, there's gonna be some issues here and there. But you need to give a more open minded approach to these things because like when I see people giving something an hour amount of time and say I have a review for this, like no, you don't. You re- that an no. hour review is a worth. That's right. So just thirty days. Give it time. Thirty days. If you want to, if you if you want to really evaluate anything, thirty days. If yep. if we can just circ- if we can just circle back, just finish this this uh, this thread one sec. So 
I went to I went to gnome.org and I looked. So by all appearances, the executive director, the director of operation, the program coordinator, the pro, the or two program coordinators, the strategic initiatives manager, the GTK core developer. It's not all of those people don't work for Red Hat. It's not until we get to the lead system engineer that, yeah, he has a job at Red Hat. So I I think the, well, idea the biggest that, sponsor nope, of Gnome's financial. Well, aspect yeah, biggest. Is Red Hat. But my point is there is a difference between a large contribution, heavy contribution, majority contribution, and it's their desktop and other people can use it, right? There's just a difference. It's a different paradigm. It's a different dynamic. It's a different no, I agree. Uh, approach. I agree with exactly what you're saying. Because I kind of think, saying. I agree with what Noah's saying because I think about flat packs and snaps and look at the difference and, you know, one being completely out there for the community and one being mostly out there for everybody to use except for the server piece. Like, you know, there, there's some reasons why some of this, I don't want to call it hate, but some of the disagreements people have with the things Canonical do exist. It's not like they're not unfair in some ways. Okay, so Noah, let's let's mm-hmm. put it into this right, right here, okay? I'm going to say something I'm going to regret. I'm ready. Wrong. Wow. <gasps> oh, whoa, what? I don't think I've ever heard that. I, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Uh, I was Is saying, there angels I'm singing? Sorry, I, I, my... Ryan, do you hear angels singing? <laughs> yeah, I do. I was oh saying my gosh. That, that I didn't think about the consideration of that point, that it is technically a company who controls it rather than, well, one is, I mean, fi- Red Hat is a Let's fundamental. Let's just stick with you, wrong. Listen, Red Hat is a <laughs> fundamental piece of all of these things, but they sure. do separate themselves in that sense that it not only is it because it gets get, you know, isolation idea theory, but also because it does mean that the community does have some impact more so than just they do. Uh, so I, that's Tech a very Nito good point. said that he recorded your apology as his new ringtone. Can I get that ringtone copy too? Because that would be every time he calls, it'll be his apology. No, I, I know wrong. you want that on your this, ringtone. I'm not as well. apologizing. I mean, I'm just saying that I acknowledge the fact that, I'm that. Not, <laughs> I think that was I'm an not, apology, Michael. No, no, I think I'm not said sorry. I was wrong. I'm not sorry for having an. In, the in, I'm open minded. See, that's how that's how this works. This I'm open minded yeah. to the uh, to the art to the discussion and the fact. Accept your apology. See, hold on, hold on, hold on. Everyone should be like Michael. There you go. Wow, I like we'll it. We back to we'll be back to stones and sticks. <laughs> no, I don't think that's in the show, and no one's gonna have any idea what you're talking about. Nope. I might put in an outtake. I might not. We'll see. Thank goodness we got the clapper board. Yeah, of course. I mean, we I have requested. a clapper board. That's awesome. I oh yeah, that. we did increase production value with that. Actually, yeah, legitimately, yep. Noah, do it again. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> this is actually he, yeah, he, something I bought as a troll to so use for my gun. Only here's the thing. This I'll tell you what, this there's a real example in here. There's a real example for all of the people that may complain about how what a hard time we give Michael. You should take a lesson from Michael. This is how Michael is a good example to the open source community. Here's why. Okay. Whoa, is this a compliment? Yes, it is. Here's the thing. Notice you know why Michael can read all of the hostile feedback that we get that turned that any any the re, any normal human being would read and immediately dismiss and and Michael can read through and go actually he has some fairly decent points. And the reason that he can see that is because he's not so concerned with defending his mochismo and his ego that he can just he listens to feedback and then takes it. So when I buy this stupid thing for 14.95 off of Amazon for the express purpose of trying to drive him nuts and troll him he looks he looks at it and goes man in my production workflow you know actually 
I'm going nice to have it. it. I'm going to make yeah, it happen. Yeah, I got a nice to have a thing in the video thing. And now all of a sudden, I've spent money. I've spent money and I spend time to help him. And he finds a way to turn that into making the show better. Everybody should be like Michael. Yeah, let's not say the show's got like Everybody should it, be like Michael. I like it. Yeah, everybody should be like me. Oh, like God. Everybody, everybody should be, be like Michael. Michael. Nothing like would get done in the world. No. <laughs> you imagine. We would still be hitting rocks on, on stones and trying to make fire. Like, <laughs> no, he'd have a scene for that. Fire scene. I would have a scene for fire. That's true. He'd be like, oh, I could have invented like a lighter, but I'm so tired today, dude. I'm so tired. <laughs> I am not like that. At all. I have the capability because I'm so amazing to create the lighter. It's it's in here. It's just <laughs> so tired. So tired. The effort involved <laughs> in making fire is not <laughs> worth the fire. But let's move on because we still we'll have figure it out. We have one more thing we want to talk about because you know the we, my favorite one out of this th- right. this group. This is the one I personally would use, and and that's Papa Wes. So Papa Wes is a really really interesting distro because you could say that it's a derivative and not a remix, but whatever. Sure, it's not technically a remix, but we're going to go with it anyway because we had that bigger conversation earlier. Uh, so I'm just going to you know put it in there. So Papa Wes, right? Papa Wes reflavor, yes. Papa West is a really cool de- distribution because they're doing a lot of interesting things, trying to reimagine GNOME in a way. Like they've added sh- shell, uh, sh- Pop Shell, the tiling window manager at, uh, extension on top of the GNOME shell, which is it's not a window manager, but it's a it's it's like a tiling window manager in terms of how it functions with automatic switching of the applications and also the automatic uh, positioning and the resizing and all that stuff. It's very cool how they're doing it, and they also have a flat pack by default. Uh, with also with I think the most important piece of this statement with Flathub pre stru- yeah. set up like there's a lot of distros that say we have flat pack flat pack by default and then not provide a repo to get the flat packs from don't do that if you're going to include flat pack include the Flathub because it is a, it is effectively the central repo for that now so just include it and yeah but Ryan why is this the one you were excited about. I mean, Pop! OS takes care of all of the problems I have personally with utilizing Ubuntu, right? They focus on the hardware of being current. They make additions to GNOME that make it more usable for my workflow. Again, I'm just talking about me. And I love the way that they break up even the AMD and NVIDIA version because I think new users are very confused with some of the menus and things out there for setting this stuff up. They have an equal focus on AMD and NVIDIA versus just being... NVIDIA, I, I think that they just do so many things right. They were the first ones to fix the, the Ryzen issue with the motherboards. They they really have, for me, this is the type of distro I would need to utilize an Ubuntu base. Otherwise, I can't use Ubuntu base. I don't trust Ubuntu bases anymore to run on my machines because when I have current hardware, when I have a new Ryzen laptop, they don't work. And it takes six months in between to get things to work. Pop OS, I could actually utilize as an Ubuntu base and trust that it's going to work with my hardware. So for me, Pop OS is the one out of all of these that I absolutely would run. I would trust it anywhere. My son u- utilizes it and it would be the distro I recommend for most new users to come on, come into Linux to go to Pop OS. It's my, one of my favorite distros by far. Well, I have passed the year mark for using Pop! OS as my main distro. So I haven't distro hopped on the main machine for over a year. And all of those reasons that you just listed are in that mix. And the other thing I'd like to point out is it's not just Pop! OS. It's the ideas and the 
the things behind Pop! OS, which is System76, and they're giving back to the community and all of the things that they put into it. It's it's that piece of it that goes the the longest for me. That's somebody that I want to support. Yeah. It stopped you from distro hopping. Yeah, let's look, just, let's, if you go back. He's the distro hoppers anonymous founder. So we definitely well, he really to- is. I mean, so the fact very- that you found a distro that with you looking at pixels being out of place and in distro hopping with all of those things that frustrated you, I think it really says something to say Pop OS has stopped you in your tracks. I mean, I know you have a distro hopping machine, but your main machine has stayed entirely Pop OS this whole time. And that speaks volumes for the work they've done. But I can go slightly further than that. And that is... It is the first distro that I have been using that I have not changed the theme on. So I would go through tons of themes on every distro, regardless of what it was. And I have not changed the theme since I started with it. It is absolutely awesome. Yeah, And and I've heard people say, well, uh, because we have some patrons jumping in here talking about all the amazing support for their hardware in here for things like Optimus and Frustrations that people have with those. And I've heard people say, well, of course, System76 has those things that, you know, the core Ubuntu doesn't have because they're a hardware company. But look, we install operating systems. I know this is going to be a big news headline here on hardware. So yeah, that's kind of important that the two work together. Uh, Yeah, I know. You have changed the game, sir. Breaking news. Yeah. But also, the only I think... Pop! OS is a very good example that it is like something that can be done that as long as you have the, you know, the vision that you want to take something and you could go very far with it. And I think that like, Pop! OS is a good example of that because when they first announced that they were doing this, people gave them a hard time. It's like, oh, yeah, yet another fork or yet another derivative. Why do we need another gnome based uh, distro? And they've shown why they did it and because it, it made it possible for them to make all of these different changes and all of these, you know, cool ideas. And it's awesome. The only thing that's missing from pop OS for me is a KDE plasma version. So that not just because plasma's like, oh gosh, he won't stop. No, not it just won't. because plasma's awesome. Not just because that, but that also gives them the opportunity to call it K pop OS. Just, that's wow. it. just think about it. Wow. Well, at least you did give them a name for I, it. I, but- I, 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 hold on. Stop. What do you mean? You gave them a name. Kapapas? Like, <laughs> no, they don't have enough problems. No, they, no, they K-pop. Out their fr- li- li- K-pop. That's di- you, you need. To, you needed look into pop Michael. culture. K-pop Michael. culture. Michael, they named their they uh. named, named their operating system POS. Okay, P-O-P-O-S. that was a problem to begin with. Yeah, right. They named their operating system POS, and that's a problem. And your suggestion as a second iteration is to have Kapapas. Nope. All I'll I'm say to end this here is uh, the world of Linux would be a bleaker place without Pop! OS. I'm so happy we have this option. I'm thankful for System76 and the work they do. And I love Pop! OS. Yeah. And let's not forget what they give back to the community uh, and to the kernel itself. Yep. So Absolutely. Yeah. They do a lot of great work. And I, I was just kidding. I just wanted to make the joke about the K-Pop! OS. I, I, I think that I, you weren't kidding. You want a KDE version? Oh, I you totally want, want them to do a KDE version because I want. I think they would make a fantastic KDE version. I, their polish would be. It'd be great. Right. I think that that'd be fantastic. You but know, you can I install PopOS and just install KDE. You know. Yes, but I want them to polish it and make it better overall. But like, oh, you want I, them to do all the work for you? No, no, no. Oh, I want them to see. I want them to show 
that what KDE Plasma could be to the world. But anyway, my point is, is that I think that it's good. But if I were to choose a GNOME desktop distro, I think that Pop! OS has the best implementation of GNOME. So if you're interested in trying out GNOME, check out Pop! OS. Agreed. So up next in the news, we have Tor. We have some unfortunate news when it comes to Tor. This is a free and open source software project that many of you utilize, enables anonymous communication, privacy-focused browsing. Browsers, whether you're in the fan club of Brave or Firefox, have implementations of Tor. It's something that is very important, especially in this day and age when privacy is under attack from all levels. And unfortunately, Tor has announced that they have to lay off a third of their staff, so 13 members, due to impacts from COVID and a decrease in donations. Now, there are still 22 people on the project, so it's going to remain alive, and they're stating they're able to maintain things that they have in existence today. But this is not what we want to see with such an important project like this. And when you think about the downturn in the economy, one of the first things people do is they're going to stop giving donations. They're going to stop contributing the things that they might have prior had some excess funds to be able to do so, and now they can't. And really, in bringing this up, my hope is that those of us who have been fortunate enough during these circumstances to maintain employed and have an ability to donate will hear this news and start funding this very, very critical project to privacy out there that most of us use, whether you realize it or not, when you're going in using some of the anonymous plugins, for instance, in Firefox, like mentioned, or Brave. So what are your thoughts on this? I, I mean, I, I, I think where we start this discussion is Tor came to the party because they provided a unique service that fundamentally changed the flow of information from our, our government here in the United States. And then from that, a bunch of privacy advocates and a bunch of privacy services sprung up. And so I don't think the, I don't think the importance of a project like Tor or the tools and freedom that that allows for people to have uh, what are known as non-attributable uh, internet searches and the ability to just acquire information. So I think that's where you start the discussion. But when you start looking at how that's played out over the past couple of years, obviously after Snowden did what he did, the U.S. government concentrated very heavily on trying to find exploitations in Tor. And while, they, and while it's by no means a broken system, they have found a number of different ways to, to attack the Firefox Brave bundle browser, which is a necessary component of Tor to get all of the settings right. Of course, you could go through and configure your own system, or you could use something like Tails that even if it is compromised the next time that it reboots, it's uh, it, it starts with a fresh instance, and so there's no persistence there. But the point is, there are some limited ways that Tor can be attacked, as any system can be. And what you find is if you go through court records and look at the at the court that the cases that are going to court, the people that are getting caught, there are more than a couple of them in which the FBI refuses to disclose the uh, exploits that they're using to, to be able to ascertain the evidence that they've ascertained in order to convict these people. Now, of course, that throws the case so these people don't get convicted. So the question has to be asked, was the FBI bluffing? Did they not really have an exploit or did they have an exploit and it's so protected that they don't want it patched that they only save that for the really big things that they really want to burn, uh, that they really want to burn on and and these smaller cases just aren't worth it to them. What You know what you, you, know what you don't see coming to court though very often? You don't see coming to court people who are using uh, certain VPN providers, right? When and and the, and the cases that do go to court with companies like Private VPN, for example, 
they don't have any records to actually to, to actually give up to the to to the courts. And so what I take away from that is I think that VPN technology is a little bit more simplistic than Tor is. And I question if there aren't less attack vectors in a VPN system than Tor itself. There is also something to be said about there is active money involved in trying to better the the the, the cryptography and the methods and look for security vulnerabilities because if there's a vulnerability in open VPN, it literally affects Red Hat's multi-billion dollar process and multi-billion dollar company. And so they're spending a lot of attention making absolutely sure that uh, there are no exploits there. there uh, when it comes to Tor though, the US government is absolutely looking for exploits, but they're looking for exploits to actually exploit it, not to fix it. And the other side of that is you're relying on community donations and community free time to patch the exploits in Tor. So I say all that to say that I don't I don't want to undervalue or any sell any of the work that the people that have worked and continue to work on Tor do. I just think that it's worth looking from a security standpoint. It, it, it has has the Tor project passed the time when it it is now the best choice to do research that you don't want attributed to you or has newer technology surpassed Tor? That's an interesting point that I don't know. Uh, I haven't, you know, the door is an interest is a, it's a, it's a fundamental thing that's important though. I would say that it does offer a lot of value in terms of like, even for the privacy and security aspects, because you can apply Tor on top of other things and have even more, uh, anonymous, uh, usage of your system. I don't know whether or not like, you know, without the, that Tor the, foundation, let's be honest, yeah. all of this stuff goes out the door. I mean, yes, I think Tor is extremely important. They met the, it just like, before yeah. everything kind of popped up off of Tor, the same thing will happen now as Tor continues. If Tor dies, it's another privacy project, another privacy-focused group that is now gone. And we need more groups, not less. And Tor is still being implemented and utilized in the technologies they create in browsers that are also focused on privacy. Otherwise, they would just take your stance and be like, well, we'll just throw a VPN in there and everything's fine. The problem is you can't trust VPNs. Which ones do you trust? I mean, there's one right. out there that most people mention, and then you host your own. But you have a, but most people aren't, don't have the capability to host their own, but they do have the capability right. to go over to their browser and just click. I want I want to open this window in Tor and know that hey, incognito mode actually doesn't protect me. But when I go to this Tor browser, I at least have some resemblance of privacy happening where my information isn't being siphoned. Yeah. And you know what, Ryan, to your point, there is something to be said about the decentralized nature of Tor, right? Because there is no one company that you have to trust. So in it, from all of those respects, I completely agree. But I'm just saying, if you look at it from a pure security standpoint and go, what is my safest option? I, I'm not sure that that answer is Tor. And it, what's interesting is you look at Proton VPN registrations going up, uh, VPNs in general, registrations going up and contributions and such down from Tor. I just have to ask the question, should we be doing some as a community? Should we be looking at this problem a slightly different way? But I think that goes a long way of what you just said that and what Ryan said. Tor to me is not the answer and it i don't think it ever was the answer and you always want it to be a layered answer so you put tour along with a vpn and that's how you run security in layers so when we lose something like tour or if we did it's not going away yet but if we did lose tour we lose one of those layers and i think that's important to keep 
So I think uh, I, I I think those are really good points. I think like any ecosystem, the best answer is, of course, to have multiple choices. I, I guess what I would encourage the tour developers to do is look at the known. Not, I, I won't go ahead and say known exploits, but the known problems that that we have to be aware of with the way that tour works and let's see if we can work on fixing some of those and if it's possible to do that then i think it's important that maybe there is an faq what is the difference between tour and a vpn and why is tour either better and or equal at, at protecting privacy and i think if you can address the privacy concerns i think the rest falls into line because I, I agree i think they're getting everything else right i just think when you look at big picture i think there are a couple of things you look at you look at the decentralized nature you look at who who's in charge of the project, you look at the motivations, but then you also look at from a pure security standpoint, what are the chances that this gets exploited? And I agree that there are some other services that surround Tor that are valuable. I just think that the browser bundle is what the vast majority of people are downloading and counting on. Yeah. And the other thing I want to add with Tor is the fact of the decentralized web that they contribute to so heavily. Look, the web environment is completely owned by corporate America at this point. There's so much push and so many people trying to find ways for a decentralized web to exist that your common everyday person can use. But there is a company out there doing that right now on the Onion Network where you have that completely decentralized. Now, some people critique it and say a bunch of bad things happen on there. A bunch of bad things happen on the regular internet too. But the whole point is taking control back to the people of the internet. And Tor is a big push in that uh, arena and why I think it's very important. And I suggest that people can donate that they do donate to help keep this project growing. And so we don't lose more people, especially with things like the whole world economy potentially being impacted in a massive way. These smaller projects, it's much easier for, look how many big companies are folding. Now imagine these small projects that rely solely on donations. They're not going out there stealing your ad information, your personal information and selling it. They rely solely on your donations, these projects will go away. And we're starting to hear about them out there of projects folding during this time because they have no other revenue. So these, these individuals who are out there developing these programs, they don't have a regular job. They've dedicated full time because the generosity of the community has allowed them to. Now they're going back and starting, hey, I'm going to have to go get a regular job. And that means that project dies. So if you can, is all I'm saying, look at projects like this if you're utilizing it and consider a donation. Yeah. You know, I hadn't considered the I hadn't considered the the anonymous network part of it. You know, the truth is at the moment there really is no replacement for that. And it's mm -hmm. a, it's an arguably better model long term because it allows both sides to be decentralized people that put the content out there and the people that are consuming the content. So it's it, it I I really I stand corrected to a, to a degree that there is there that that whole ha other half of Tor and it really is half of the advantage of using Tor really isn't being competed on on any level. Yeah, yeah, I think Onions Network is the only one that exists for that. And you, you were mentioning like the when you said the decentralized web's like oh yes the Onions Network and I completely didn't even think about it. So I'm glad you brought it up because it is a very important piece of what they do. And I agree that, you know, in this situation that we're all dealing with that if you have the ability to participate and help something like this, I think it is a, a good, a good project and a good foundation to participate in because they are doing a lot of good work. So let's go to the software spotlight. So we're going to talk about something we've already sort of mentioned in this, sh in the show when we got to the UMix OS thing, talking about time shift from TG tech. TimeShift is a system restore tool for Linux. It creates file system snapshots using rsync plus hardlinks or ButterFS snapshots. 
It supports scheduled snapshots, multiple backup levels, and it also gives you the option for include exclude filters. So you can actually choose to, to not ex- include certain files on the snapshots because maybe you don't need everything on your system to be snapshotted. You probably do need everything in your system, but anyway. Snapshots can be restored while the system is running or from a live USB. And if you're using Arch-based distributions, you can use the TimeShift-Auto Snap and have a snapshot created anytime you run Pac-Man upgrade on your system. A super powerful tool, and it's also available on many distributions, pretty much every distribution, including TimeShift has it by default. I think it is available in a lot of distributions now by default. It might not be running, in, like it's installed by multiple distributions by default, but not like running by default. So you might have to go in and check to see if your system has it and turn it on. But I think TimeShift is a very cool uh, application, and it does provide a lot of peace of mind in case you want to do you know, a more casual backup of doing the transactional updates and that sort of thing. So check out TimeShift if you are if you want to implement a system restore tool. Today's tip and trick is the magic of curly brackets on the command line. So say, for example, you want to convert a PNG photo to a JPEG. Like most things on the command line, you would issue the command, which is convert, and then you give the source and the destination. So picture.png to picture.jpg. With curly brackets, it shortens significantly the amount that you have to type because you simply type picture once. So the new command would be convert picture dot, open curly bracket, PNG, comma, JPG, close curly bracket. And the idea is the curly brackets will then tell the system, hey, he wants to convert picture.png and just output it as picture.jpg. There are other fun commands that you can do with curly brackets as well. It's actually pretty universal here. So once you learn this and get it down, which is pretty awesome, then go and look at all of the different use cases for making some of your maybe bash scripts or other things flow and work easier. Yeah. And also, just so you know, this will be in the show notes, just like all the other options. We also have it on the picks list. So go to destinationlinux.org slash picks, and that will show you all the tips and tricks that we've had and all of the software spotlights that we had. It's also helped being maintained by the community members, which is really cool. If you'd like to help there too, that's awesome. Uh, but every topic, that every pick that we have on the show is available on destinationlinux.org slash picks. So for our gaming section, I want to talk about the armpit of the internet, Google. They released yes. the Stadia out there that people know about. And I actually have someone, we actually have someone on the show for the first time that can tell us their experience with Google Stadia. Because Rocco, I believe you actually got one of these devices. And while I call Google the armpit of the internet, it does look like this device itself is getting better and it's not getting dropped by Google, which is shocking to me that it hasn't died already because it wasn't an immediate massive success for them. But, uh, you know, for those who don't know, Google Stadia is a game streaming service powered by Linux and Vulkan. It allows you to play games from your browser, Android mobile, or your TV if you have Chromecast on here. And it came with a pretty limited amount of games that you could play and a lot of the things that they were hyping up about how everything's going to be so smooth and it was going to stream in super high quality and all that really hasn't come to fruition. But it is getting better, and some of the games they announced, PUBG, available right now, Octopath Traveler, Get Pack, SteamWorld Heist, The Turing Test, Zombie Army 4, and they also partnered with EA, which I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but some of the games there, uh, Krata, which looks like a creation-type um, open-world game, Ember, Orcs Must Die, Rocks of Ages 3, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, and Wave Break are all coming soon this year. 
So they are adding more titles to it, which is a good sign that the service isn't dead yet. But Rocco, you do get to play games on Linux, which is an advantage. Some games that aren't available in Proton. What is your take on Stadia? Well, I'm going to start out by saying that I listened to the episode of you guys talking about Stadia for the first time at work. And I was like ready to throw my wrenches on the ground, wishing I was here to say something because you guys are pretty rough on it. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> um, well, look, there's going to be pros and cons to this regardless. So it is a not, it's not a perfect thing. So it's Google one. Obviously that's a con. Um, you have to have a great internet connection. Uh, okay. So I wouldn't say you have to have a great internet connection. You have to have a stable internet connection. And there's also the topic of ownership of games. Uh, but I would argue that we barely own our games now anyway, regardless of what platform you're on. But there are so many pros and so many possibilities that come with this that I don't see how you can ignore it. Uh, you have the hardware limitations that you that you just throw that out the window. Uh, when you can play this game, AAA game, on pretty much any hardware with a browser, if it can run the browser, it can run the game. You don't have the hard drive space that you need for these games that are coming out that have, you know, 100 gigabytes uh, install and thousands of extra updates as you go along. There's no installing the game. There's no updating the game. I mean, from start to finish, you go from being in the browser on Stadia's website in the store, you click buy for whatever game you're looking for. And within a second, it's there to hit the play button. I mean, I don't know how you can get any easier than that. There's <laughs> no dual booting windows. The OS isn't a factor anymore. You know, we always talk about how we want Linux adoption and if more games came to Linux, and, and that would be great. But in the grand scheme of things, if you could play every game out there, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter how many people would be able to come over from Windows because they could now play the games they want to play on Linux. So I'm not going to say that I love everything about this. But I love the possibilities that it opens up, just like you mentioned about the EA partnership. You know, nobody likes big companies like that. OK, but when you look at them making partnerships like that, where, you know, the NVIDIA GeForce now kind of flubbed it on that end of it by not getting that prepared for what it should have known was going to happen. Can you imagine playing the latest Call of Duty on Linux? And you don't have to worry about anti-cheat software. You don't have to worry about hard drive space or nothing. So I think it's a great thing just for those possibilities. I, I don't disagree with you. I think we all hoped that this would come out from a different company. Even NVIDIA's, like you said, their version that I could totally get behind. If Steam had something, although I hear it's in the works, I would get behind. It's It's the Google part and the fact that, look, they have such a track record, even if despite all the privacy issues, despite the fact they make most of their money off of ads and your information and all of that stuff, if you put all of that aside and say, I just want to play games, the fact that they kill off their services so much, you know, and you're going to invest money into this for something that could be dead in a couple of months if they don't get this mass success out of it, we're all real fears. But your point is dead on. People can now play games on Linux in a browser that and, and have a good experience probably better than most people would have on their own dedicated hardware because not everybody's running 2080 TIs and all this stuff. And they could do it from a browser is amazing. It makes gaming accessible to stuff. So the idea of stream gaming game streaming service, I think is amazing. I'm sure that Google Stadia has the ability to become huge here. 
Although when I look at the games that they have, even with these announcements, while it's nice, there's more games. I got to ask Rocco, were you a little disappointed with some of the games here? Cause I felt like they, there's just not a lot of triple a games that I would be super pumped to go play. Uh, I was completely disappointed from the beginning, from the very beginning, I was disappointed with the selection of games that they had, but I guess I look at it from a standpoint of this is a monumental undertaking that they're doing to get all of these companies on board. So this is going to take time. It's not like it's going to happen overnight where they're going to have all of these companies on board. But getting PUBG, one of the most popular games out there, right, uh, is is a success in my opinion. And I think going back to them killing services. Yes, uh, they have a tendency to kill services, especially ones that, you know, you may be using. But they also put a lot of uh, production into this as well with uh, making partnerships with AMD and uh, having logos on boxes and, and stuff like that. That does, that's not a simple cut and dry as well. We're going to get rid of this messenger service because it's not, because we don't like it anymore. Yeah. I I'm very proud of the fact that they partnered with AMD. So how do you like gaming on AMD Rocco? <laughs> well, the funny thing is when you're, I did a, I did a live stream on this on Google Stadia. And of course I took a heat for that. Cause you know, Linux yeah, guy of course. Google Stadia, but um, it, there was zero hiccups during that stream with the exception of not having a big selection of games. And I had to turn off the one game because it, you know, it was swear, started to swear in the game and everything, but there was zero hiccups on it. And you know what, to be honest with you, Ryan, if I can do that, you, you know, AMD for the win. There you go. Nice. All there right. Yeah, we, go. we got him. We got him. Now I might have to go get a Stadia that uses AMD. <laughs> hey, Ryan, I just I have to ask, like, when this happens, do you uh, do you have like a little? Uh, do you take a knife and like make a little notch in your video card every time? How can you? Going? Do you have a camera in my room? How did <laughs> no, you know that? It's your it's your Nest Cam. I just got into. Oh, it. okay. You got a hold of it. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't yeah. have had that Nest Cam from Google. Right. <laughs> so a big thank you to each and every one of you for watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want a behind-the-scenes pass into the making of the show and an opportunity to chat with us live, consider becoming a patron. Our patrons help keep the show going and get perks like access to the live recordings and unedited versions of the show. The best part is you can join for just a few dollars on Patreon responses. Destination Linux Network also has a great way for you to become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums. You can discuss the shows and the network with listeners from all around the world, all in one place. Now, if you're looking for more live chat sessions or voice chat sessions, then we invite you to join our Discord server where you can interact and share your passion with people and different members of the community. If you're looking for just chat, of course, the Telegram group is still available. You can learn about all of those resources at destinationlinux.network. And we love hearing from you. So please get back to us and provide some feedback or ask any burning questions you may have. Send video links or comments to our email address, comments at destinationlinux.org. Please try to keep the comments brief as we may include them in a future episode of the show. Also, do not forget to pick up some swag over at the DLN store. There are many people who've picked up hoodies and shirts and coffee cups, and they talk about the life-changing experience of getting that swag in their life. We don't know what that life-changing experience is, but we hear it's amazing. It is amazing. I have confirmed it. I've been, I've been told of that many times, and it has been confirmed by at least three people. If you want more content, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels that you can check out. Ryan, you can, you can be found at youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he'll fill your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. 
You can find my content at tuxdigital.com where I do an in-depth weekly Linux Good News podcast called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content. Noah can be found at the Ask Noah Show, where he does a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him, and he'll answer all your questions for tech, Linux, business, and whatever else you want, maybe. Uh, AskNoahShow.com for that. And Rocco... Uh, no, I've, no, I'm, no, it's LinuxTool.com. Oh, sorry, LinuxTool.com. That, we're still doing that, apparently. Uh, Rocco, I'm a big fan of Shameless Plug, so I'd like to offer you the opportunity to sh- plug anything you would like to whether it's shameless this or camera, not. This camera, this camera, this camera. Tell folks where you're going to be, Rocco. I love it. Love the Hot Ones reference. Go ahead. Okay, so uh, you can find some awesome people in the Biddle community at BigDaddyLinux.com or go to YouTube.com forward slash BigDaddyLinux and you will find the Biddle community and, again, some awesome people. Nice. Plus Linux Spotlight. Let's yep. not forget about Linux, Linux Spotlight. Spotlight. Check out all those amazing interviews you're doing, in, including, I hear a rumor... I may have watched it three or four times. Mark Shuttleworth was on your your show. Linux Can you Spotlight. believe it? it was I cannot believe fantastic. it. Fantastic. That's awesome, man. Congratulations on that. Make sure to check out other Destination Linux Network shows like Hardware Addicts, Linux for Everyone, and the DLN Extend podcast. Our very own Jason Levangelo of Linux for Everyone created a folding at home group for Destination Linux Networks to help everyone get involved in uncovering valuable information about COVID-19 and, all, and a bunch of other diseases as well. So it's not just that. And if, you could, if you'd like to help participate and help with uncovering this information, you can join the team uh, along with the rest of DLN by joining D- 240869. And why are you laughing? Like that is. I can't help it. Our patrons do this to us all the time. They put in chat that we're going to have a t-shirt and hoodie come, coming soon. That's blah, 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 TD 2020, <laughs> which Michael messed up when he was because you're going to keep this in the show for those who didn't hear. This is why becoming a patron. I am not so keeping this in. We are yes, def- you need to keep that in. <laughs> he got me on that one when I looked over and saw. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, all right. And our very own Jason Evangelo has set up a... a, a Oh, you nailed it. Good Good job, job. Michael. Yes! I wasn't the only one that screwed it up. Anyway, (laughs) we also have a a Rosetta at home team as well. I'll have Latin information for that in the show notes too. Uh, But yeah, sure. (laughs) Blah, 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 blah. That's also... We might do a t-shirt for blah, blah, blah. And now more than ever, everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Awesome hearing you do it, Rocco. Yeah, we should just have that, the permanent uh, permanent. We really should. It was Rocco saying that. He won't release the rights to us unless we pay his Stadia subscription. (laughs) (laughs) 